Okay, very good. Acts chapter 4, we're going to read, we're going to be from 14 down through 35, but for the opening text this evening, we're going to be in 32 through 35, actually 14 through 37, but tonight, uh, to begin with 32 through 35, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to, please, and uh, we'll be reading 32 uh, through verse 35 here. The Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, And of one soul. This is a common theme in the book of Acts. One heart, one soul. Neither said any of them that ought uh, of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now, verse 33 is where really our theme verse tonight. We're going to refer back to this verse uh, quite a bit. Look here at verse 33. We see two elements. And with, notice these next two words, great power. Great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace, great grace, great power and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, we're going to look in chapter 4 at three different, uh, three different pivots, three different directions that um, this chapter seems to go, but they all seem to circle back around this idea of great power and great grace. The title of the message tonight is this, A Church with Great Power and Great Grace. I know that that's, that's my prayer for White Oak Baptist Church, that the Holy Spirit of God His power will rest upon not just the pastor, not just the deacons, not just the life group leaders, not just the nursery workers, but on every single person that attends here. God's power will work in you and through you, and that God's grace would be manifested uh, from God through us and onto each other and on a broken world around us. So let's, uh, with that in mind, let's let's pray, and then we'll jump into the message tonight, Lord. Uh, simply tonight. We just pray that you'd help us to understand the verses in our head and then, Lord, apply them to our life. Lord, may we leave here with a desire to be more like you. May we leave here with a desire to do church the way that this church did it back in Acts chapter 4. Lord, we want you to look down on this place and these people. And Lord, we want to know that you're pleased with, with us and that When you created the church, Lord, not that we'll be perfect, but this will have been what you had in mind. So, Lord, help us tonight to have come to you with a heart that's cleansed and prepared, Lord, to be challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Verse 33 of Acts 4 tells us that this early church was identified by two markers. Two markers. Great power and great grace. Great power and great grace. Where did that power come from? Did it come from their education? Did it come um, uh, from their workout regimen, their exercise schedule? Um, No. Their power came from the Holy Spirit of God. We'll see, uh, let's see here, we'll, uh, we'll see a little bit later in the message that they would ask for that power, And that boldness, and God would give it to them afresh. God's power brings about God's grace that we willingly pour out on anyone and everyone around us. If you are truly living with God's power on your life, then it does not matter how people treat you. All that matters is that God's grace pours through you and on others. God's grace becomes our defense against our foes. God's grace defines our prayer when we worship our Creator. God's grace dictates our giving when we see the needs of other believers. In the beginning of Acts 4, you may remember last week we looked at Peter and John. They were arrested for the powerful, powerful message they preached Remember Acts 3, Peter and John healed the man outside the gate, beautiful, 
and the guy jumps up and he runs in the temple in a big spectacle, a big show, and then a bunch of people gather and preach, and Peter stands up, uh, Peter and John stand up, and Peter preaches, and as a result of that sermon, 5,000 people get saved. Now, I've had a bunch of people get saved at once while I was preaching. I've never had 100 people get saved, much less 5,000 get saved. We had a funeral here a, uh, a couple of years ago. I guess it would have been about 13 or 14 months ago. Crystal Sivik's father passed away, and we had uh, the auditorium was comfortably full, and we probably had 35 or 40 hands for salvation raised at the end of the service. That's probably the most folks I've seen saved at once uh, in one setting personally, but 5,000? 5,000 people got saved? I, I would have loved to have been there that day and witnessed that. Right on the heels of these people getting saved, here come the chief priests and the scribes and the religious council to sour the celebration. And they arrest Peter and John and the man who's been made whole and they rush them in to a separate part of the temple where they're going to be judged for these defiant, these quote-unquote, scare quotes, defiant acts. Uh, They stood, Peter and John stood before the council and defended themselves for preaching in the name of Jesus. Look back at verse 13. Verse 13, speaking of this religious council, the Bible says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now this was the last verse we looked at last Sunday evening, and we said that Peter and John by this council were perceived as dumb. Dumb, notice the word unlearned. Um, They didn't have a... Formal education. They were just trained by Jesus, you know, and to them, Jesus was just this, you know, this peasant commoner who was sort of a standout that they had done away with. And they didn't have a formal education like the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes had. So they were labeled as unlearned or dumb. They were, uh, they were labored as ignorant or dense. Uh, you don't know anything. No one's ever learned you anything. Amen. Uh, they were labeled as dense. And then not only were they labeled as dense, but notice that they were labeled as different. The Bible says there, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And that's where we left the, the message off last week. They had been with Jesus. Hey, listen, if a world wants to look at me and think I'm dumb as a box of rocks, that's fine with me. World wants to look at me and think I'm ignorant or dense, okay. But what I really want is the world to look at me and say, that guy's been with Jesus. That woman, I'm not a woman, but for you ladies in here, that woman, she's been with the Lord. It's clear something's very different about that person over there. They may think you're odd and peculiar because you don't sit at the same table as they do at, at lunch or Uh, You're not willing to join in on the husband or wife bashing at work. Uh, They may think that you are odd because you don't cuss or you are out of the know when it comes to the TV programs that everyone's talking about. And you're not up to date with what's trending on Twitter or Facebook. But none of that matters because while they may think that you're odd or peculiar or weird, they'll know this, you've been with Jesus. They looked at Peter and John and they said, these folks are different. But what would happen to them? Understand, this council had the authority to inflict physical pain on them by having them beaten. I propose that Christians today show little grace because they experience little power from on high. We live life in our own strength most of the time. We show grace... Only through our own life's experiences. Where someone's been gracious to me, then I can be gracious to you. Boy, that's a, that's a bad way of showing grace. Instead of me focusing on the grace people have showed me, I ought to be focusing on the grace that God shows me. Because, listen, this is limited, this direction. If you're here this evening and I've been gracious and kind to you, uh, you can you can put that in a little thimble compared to how gracious God has been to you. And if you're only going to be gracious to other people based on humanity and how they treat you, my friend, your grace is going to be little. But if you're focusing on how much God loves you, and your grace flows from that point, 
It's unlimited how much grace that you can show other people. Now watch this. Little power, little grace. Great power, great grace. Where is our attention this evening? I have the privilege to sit with folks in my office and give the gospel message. I talked about having Kevin and Vanessa in my office uh, earlier this week and getting to tell them about Jesus. I got to sit down with another young man in my office this week and give him the gospel as well. I would say on an average week, one or two times, I have someone stop by so I can give them the gospel. Maybe three times a month that happens, and I love doing it. You know what I love to do is sit down with someone and tell them what Jesus went through on the cross. We're going to take the uh, partake of the Lord's Supper elements here in a few minutes. And that moment when I'm giving someone the gospel and I'm telling them about what Jesus did on the cross, and it hits them like a ton of bricks that Jesus suffered for me. Remember when that happened for you for the first time? You remember the first time you realized he went through that for me? He, he died for me? Yes, he died for the world, John 3.16. Yes, he died for us, Romans 5.8. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we live under the, the spout of that kind of grace, there isn't anyone we can't love and forgive. There isn't anyone we can't be gracious and kind to. to. Little power, little grace. Great power, great grace. I see churches that splinter and fall apart from time to time. I've been a part of churches that have had vicious and nasty business meetings and uh, threats are made and shouting and yelling goes on. When I was a teenage boy especially, I witnessed these kind of things and I've seen assistant pastors get into shoving matches. Not at our church, amen, but at other churches uh, I've seen that uh, happen. I wasn't the one in the shoving match, but I've seen other people where that's happened. Little power, little grace. Great power, great grace. We're going to look at three ways that God's power and grace is manifested in the rest of this chapter. And let's consider this sermon title, A Church with Great Power and Great Grace. Point number one of the message tonight I encourage you to fill in the outline as we go here. Point number one, notice Peter and John's warning. Peter and John's warning. They're brought in before the council. The council questions them on what happened. And they're going to be warned uh, to knock it off and to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. Notice letter A, their rebuke. Their rebuke. Look with me at Acts chapter 4 and look at verse number 14. The Bible says there, And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. Are you picturing this? They asked Peter and John, what are you doing? And they say, we're preaching in the name of Jesus. And they say, we'll knock it off. You need to stop that. Peter and John say back, we can't help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We're not going to stop. And they're standing there. And this man who has been healed is standing there with them. And they don't really know what to say. And so they ask them to step out of the room for a little bit so they can, like a jury, confer amongst themselves. They can talk amongst themselves. Verse 16, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So after sending them out for a short time, they talk amongst themselves and say, well, if we, if we hurt them, if we beat them, if we injure them, we're just going to make it worse. We're going to have the people turn against us because clearly a miracle has been done here. So we're, we're just going to call them in and we're going to rebuke them. We're going to tell them to knock it off and stop doing it. And then at that point, hopefully, all of this will be laid to rest. Letter B, we see their response. I love how Peter and John respond. They respond uh, uh, perfectly to this. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God 
to hearken unto you, or more uh, than uh, unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They look back at this council and they say, Hey, now I want you to answer me a question. Uh, You're telling me to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, but my God has ordered me to do it. Should I obey you or should I obey God? You tell me, should I obey man or should I obey God? And listen, there may be laws passed in this country in the next few years that limit our scope or try to limit our scope of preaching the the gospel message and telling people about the Lord. And they may pass laws against hate speech and try to limit us. And I just have to say this, I'm going to obey obey every ordinance of man that does not violate the Bible, but when I'm told to do something that's against the Word of God, I'm going to obey God rather than man. Peter and John said, we cannot help, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter and John said, we followed Jesus around for three and a half years. We watched Him heal all those sick people. We watched Him huddle up sinners around Him and, 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 and save their souls. We watched Him with that woman at the well. Uh, you remember in John chapter 4 where she came and she had been married five times living with a sixth man and, and she was a wretched soul and the Lord saved her and did a great work in Samaria that day. They watched as Jesus tenderly and compassionately loved everyone around them. They watched as their Savior was arrested. They watched as He died on the cross. They watched as He rose from the dead. They stood there with them on the Mount of Olives as Jesus commissioned them and said, Go! Preach the Gospel! And then He ascended up into heaven. These, these, these measly little men, this little pharisaical uh, uh, hypocritical council is telling them to knock it off and they say, We cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, you and I didn't follow Jesus around for three and a half years and watch Him do all that, but I can tell you this, I was there the day He saved my soul. Amen? How many remember the day He saved your soul? Hey, aren't you glad that that saving grace is not just available to you, it's available to every single person in this community, in this world, that isn't a a safe. All of the broken uh, and and hurt lives in our area today, all of the folks uh, that are going to get up tomorrow morning with a heavy heart, all of the people that struggle with drug addiction, all the people on the street that are homeless, all of the people uh, that are going to bed hungry tonight, all the people that are going through a broken relationship, all of the people... who are hospitalized with COVID and struggling with other sicknesses tonight. My friend, Jesus loves them, and I cannot help but speak the things which I have seen and heard. I've watched Jesus reach down and touch hearts and lives. I've seen Jesus take the most wretched of souls and the most horrible situation, and I've seen God's grace heal on so many levels. Someone says, prove to me that God is real. Prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead. And I would say to you, I don't know what uh, physical evidence I could offer. I could dig up and conjure up some uh, uh, some some theological answer. I, I could sit down and argue with you the finer points of theology, but the best response I can point to you is that Jesus saved my soul and He'll do the same for you. They said, you can tell us to be quiet all you want, but we can't help it. Like Jeremiah said, it was like a fire burning inside of me and I could not stay. Hey, Jeremiah said, I got discouraged and I wanted to quit. And I didn't want to say anything else to anyone else. He said, but it was a fire burning inside of me. I just couldn't help but tell everyone I could about the goodness of God. And the disciples here said, we cannot help ourselves. Letter C, we see their release. Their release. Look at Acts chapter 4 and look at verse number 21. The Bible says, So that when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing, how they might punish them because of the people. Now, they wanted to punish them. They were bloodthirsty. They had just put Jesus on the cross. Uh, but they knew they couldn't because it would make them unpopular. Uh, the verse goes on and says, For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was about 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And uh, being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. So they look at them. They want to beat them. They want to punish them. And we'll see later in the book of Acts 
that they would start to beat them and punish them because things were getting out of control and they couldn't stop this revival that was taking place in Jerusalem. But here, at least at this point, there was no beating. There were only threatenings. They knew that at this point they could not do that. And so they let them go. They released them and they go back to uh, the brethren. Uh, the message, however, was clear to these disciples, to these apostles, Peter and John, if you continue to preach in this name, we will punish you. Now, watch this here. God had allowed this man to be healed. That's great power. Great power. And through that power, God delivered them from being beaten. You know what that is? That's great grace. Great power, that man was healed. And by God's great grace, there was a threat, but there was no beating. Great power brings about great grace. Well, let's look at this great power, great grace thought from yet another angle. Notice point number two, the church's prayerful worship. The church's prayerful worship. We saw Peter and John's warning. Now we're going to see that Peter and John, they head back uh, to their church they head back to the group of believers that they were um, accompanied with and a part of, and they report back what happened there in the council. Letter A, notice their remembrance of God's power. Their remembrance of God's power. Look at verse number 24, Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 24. The Bible says, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that in them is. How do they open up their prayer? They opened up their prayer by acknowledging God as being all-powerful, so powerful He could create the heaven, the earth, and the seas. Once Peter and John had been released, they conveyed back with the core of the church. The very first thing they did was stop and pray and worship God for how He had protected His preachers. They point to God as Elohim. We looked at Elohim this morning. We talked about how the in the beginning God, Genesis 1-1, that name of God is Elohim, the all-powerful one, the omnipotent God who created the heaven and the earth. You know what they're saying right here? They're saying that these men may have arrested our preachers, but their power is no match for His power. His power. I don't want to speak... Uh, in in uh, hyperbolic terms, I don't want to exaggerate uh, uh, things, but I'll just speak to you how I see the world uh, without trying to be sensational. I'm 37 years old. Um, I'm probably middle of the pack in the room. Some of you are older than me. Some of you in here are younger than me. I think the ones of you that are in here that are older uh, than me can uh, uh, say this even more wholeheartedly than I can but America is not on a good trajectory when it comes to religious liberty. We are not on a good trajectory. I do believe that there are laws that will be passed in our country over the next couple of years that will greatly attempt to restrict churches like ours from preaching the Bible in an unbridled way. I really do. I really do. Uh, I think that it's very possible if the Lord Jesus doesn't return... And if I live to be a 75 or 80-year-old preacher, I think it's very possible that I very well may land in jail for preaching what I'm preaching. You say, well, not in this country. Listen, uh, freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free, and religious liberty is under attack. It truly is. There may be a day where if you hand out a gospel tract and try to tell someone about the gospel of Jesus, it may very well be that some council, some jury threatens you. And I would just say that in these times, we need to be reminded now and we need to remember then that God is all-powerful and He's in charge. And uh, one day, we're going to give an account to Him. What was the very first thing that they did when they stopped to pray? They said to God, you are all-powerful. You are the creator of the heaven and the earth and the seas. Let her be, notice the rage from God's enemies. We see the remembrance of God's power. Notice the rage from God's enemies. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage, 
and the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His child, for a truth against His holy child Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, but both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Verse number uh, uh, 25, uh, here they are quoting from Psalm chapter 2 and verse number 1. David wrote in Psalm 2, 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The early church seemed to understand that opposition. They seemed to understand threats and persecution are all part of pursuing God's will. Now, David. David wrote Psalm chapter 2. Uh, was David threatened by an enemy? He sure was. That enemy was his father-in-law. That enemy was King Saul. King Saul chased him all over the wilderness and tried to kill him, and almost did a couple of times. David had to deal with the rage of an enemy. How about Jesus? You remember when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and the wise men came to Jerusalem following that star? You remember how that uh, Herod lied to him and said, well, you take, uh, go find him and come back so I want to worship Jesus. It was all a lie. And then when the wise men didn't return to tell him, he said that the, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2 that the wise men mocked him. He felt like they had mocked him. And so what did he do? He ordered to have every baby in Bethlehem, and the, in the region at large, under the age of two, murdered. That's genocide. That's terrible. Jesus had escaped to, to Egypt to avoid that. How about Pontius Pilate? Now, um, I do feel bad for the spot that Pilate was put in, but I think that preachers give Pilate more of a pass than they probably ought to. Pilate had the power to set Jesus free and didn't because he was afraid of the people. And whether or not Pilate went through the antics of washing his hands in a bowl of water, it was still Pilate ultimately that allowed Jesus to go to the cross. The rage of the heathen. Christian, let me ask you a question. Why do you think you should get a pass on the rage of God's enemies? None of us want to be persecuted. If I put a, a sign-up sheet on the back table and, and said, if you want to be persecuted this week, sign up on your way out the door, ain't nobody putting their name on that sheet. None of us want it. You know, there are many people that even question God's love when they are persecuted. But we need to understand that persecution is just part of serving God. The enemies will always rage against us because Satan is the prince and power of the air and he hates our God and so he hates us. Let her see. We see their request for Holy Spirit boldness. Their request for Holy Spirit boldness. Now again, you know, you know the story. They, they preach, 5,000 get saved. Peter and John are taken in, they're arrested, they're threatened and let go. They come back to the church and they're having a prayer meeting. They're worshiping God through prayer. They get down to the end of their prayer, uh, verse 29 and 30. What is it that they're going to ask God for? What is their request? Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that the threatenings will stop. That's not what it says. It says, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak the word. There's that courage we're talking about on Sunday mornings. By stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. You know what they're saying here? They're saying here, allow us to go forth and continue to do these miracles like this man was healed, with boldness so that we can validate that what we're saying about you is true. They asked for boldness. 
What was their request to God? Was it that the threatenings would stop? No. Was it that the hard times would cease? No. Was it that the government would leave them alone? No. Their prayer was that in the face of the threatenings, that they would have more boldness to speak God's Word. More boldness. Hey, as the heat is turned up, help us to be more bold, more bold, not less bold. I think of John when Jesus was arrested. The Apostle John was with Jesus in that room when he was tried by Caiaphas. Do you know where the other disciples were? They weren't there. You see, when the heat got turned up, John stayed and everyone else fled. Which disciple are you going to be when times get tough? Are you going to be the disciple that runs and hides in fear of the threat of pain and suffering that's inflicted on Christians who stand? Or are you going to be that Christian who's by the side of Jesus and loyal to Him? They asked for more boldness. I'm not trying to pick on anyone tonight. I promise I'm not. But I do want to say something a little bit pointed right here. And so I'll say it in a very calm tone because the the, the words themselves are are pretty pointed. How are you going to take a stand for Jesus when it's tough when you can't take a stand for Jesus when it's not? A lot of people don't have enough boldness to hand a tract to a stranger. Well, how in the world are you going to stand in the face of a threat of death? If you can't even stare the guy down on the other side of the gas pump and give him a gospel track. Now again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to hold up a mirror and show you where you may, where you may be. Christians, the Holy Spirit of God will give you boldness. But you must ask Him for it. Remember back in Acts chapter 1 when we began this series of sermons? Remember what God said, Jesus said, He said, All power is given in heaven and earth, and ye shall be witnesses. Not by your power, by His power. Hey, God's power is a great thing to tap into, and that gives you great boldness to do a whole lot. My friend, let's be bold. Let's not run and hide, because it's not going to get any easier anytime soon. Letter D, notice the results of unity praying. The results of unity praying. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Boy, that's a quick answer to prayer, is it not? They worship God. They remember His power. They acknowledge the rage from the enemy. They uh, request for Holy Spirit boldness. And what is the result of their prayer? God uh, uh, gives them a fresh filling of Holy Spirit power and gives them a fresh boldness to go forth and proclaim the gospel. Now notice here the very careful choosing of the words in verse number 31. Uh, They were not indwelled by the Spirit of God here. That took place in Acts chapter 2. Rather, they were filled with the Spirit of God. I've made the point uh, many times before. Uh, I'll make it here again quickly. You got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get the moment you got saved. The question is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have. The question is how much does the Holy Spirit have of you? Are you yielded to Him? You know what this was here in Acts uh, chapter 4? This was them re-yielding their hearts to the Holy Spirit of God and saying, You are in control. Give us your power. We want your power. We want your divine boldness. What happened here when they prayed, when they prayed in unity? What happened when they worshipped the Lord in this prayer? God filled them with His boldness. These early believers entered into the throne room of God's great grace, and as a result of their prayer, God granted them 
great power. I want you to uh, see a trend here tonight. Great power, great grace. This is cyclical. One feeds into the other, and the other feeds into the other. It goes round and round and round. And when we get the power grace wheel really rolling, boy, it's a great thing that gets going. And listen, this is the momentum we want at White Oak Baptist Church. We want great power and great grace. Great power and great grace. What made the church of Jerusalem so wonderful? What made it so wonderful is they had great power and great grace. They prayed for God. God's great power, and as a result, they had great grace. And that spills into point number three. Number one, we see Peter and John's warning. Number two, we see the church's prayerful worship. Number three, notice the church's wealth. The church's wealth. Letter A, notice the unity of the church. Look at verse number 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The Bible says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, and of one soul. See the unity here? Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. It says here in verse 32, they were of one heart. That means they shared the same passions and desires. It says they were of one soul. That means they shared the same eternal destination. What was the result? Those who had gave to those who had not. Why? God's grace had so radically changed them that they could not help but give to help their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Great grace, great power. Little grace, little power. Here power is displayed in their giving, their financial giving. Let her be notice the utterance of the apostles. The utterance of the apostles. Look at Acts chapter 4. And look at verse number 33. The Bible says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 33, again, is the central idea here of the entire chapter. Great power and great grace. The apostles preached the gospel message with great power. As people listened, great grace transformed people's hearts and people's souls. Their preaching was powerful. Now, I want you really hear what I'm about to say right here. Uh, their preaching was powerful, not necessarily because of who they were. Their preaching was powerful, not necessarily because of the style of deliverance they chose to give. Some people are animated when they preach, such as I am. Some people are more stoic when they preach. Some people, um, uh, they preach really short sermons. Some people preach really long sermons. Uh, some people, uh, they use a lot of personal illustrations. Some people like to use a lot of history illustrations. Some people are more philosophical in their preaching. Other people are more uh, practical in their preaching. Can I tell you tonight that it isn't about the style of preaching uh, that makes it powerful. What made their sermon powerful is that the people uh, they, th- that they were preaching to were yielded to exactly what was preached and what God had for them. You know, there have been times where I've gone in, into a church and I've preached a sermon and I've taken the same outline and the same notes. Man, I have prayed the same. I have prepared the same. I have gotten in the pulpit as spirit-filled uh, the same. And the sermon has gone over like a lead balloon. And then I get up in another church and I preach the same sermon. And man, the altars are full and people are making decisions for the Lord. What's the difference? Well, I prepared the same. I preached the same sermon. I prayed the same. Can I tell you the difference? We want the pastor to be prayed up before he comes into the pulpit. Amen? And he ought to be. We want the pastor to be prepared when he gets in the pulpit. And he ought to be. Are you prayed up and prepared when you arrive to hear the preaching of God's Word? We roll in, wiping sleepies out of our eyes from our Sunday afternoon nap, and many times we're only here out of obligation. And listen, if you're here, I'm thankful. I'm not putting you down at all. I'm glad you show up. But if you're not going to put a lot of effort into it, you're not going to get much out of it. These people, the the, the apostles preached, and listen, they did their part. They were prepared. They were spirit-filled. They prayed for boldness. They preached with great boldness, but the sermon did not land on deaf ears because the people 
prayed and were prepared. Listen, here is something you ought to do every time you show up to church. You ought to sit down in your pew, or maybe in the car right in you do this, and you say to the Lord before the sermon begins, Lord, help me uh, to get something from the message that will make me a better Christian, a better believer. You come in with your heart prepared. You come in ready to be changed. You say, well, I don't really care for Pastor Lejeune's delivery style. Or I, I like this preacher better. I like that better. Can the Word of God speak to your heart? Then let God's Word speak to your heart. The utterance of the apostle. They preach with great power. And as a result, we'll see here in the remainder of the chapter, boy, this church was filled with grace like few churches ever have been. Let her see notice the unselfishness of the church. The unselfishness of the church. Look at verse 34. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. This is amazing. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the price of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of encouragement, or the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow. Now, Cyprus, or rather um, Barnabas, Joseph or Barnabas, wasn't the, uh, the only one to do this, but he was probably the first. Uh, do you understand what happened here? There were people in the church who were needy. And there were people in the church that had money. And the people who had money looked over at those that were needy and didn't say to them, hey, why don't you petition to the government to take care of your need? Because the government wasn't going to take care of their need. I remember Brother Esposito, who was a missionary uh, to Southeast Asia. He was here a couple of years ago, and he was preaching. And, boy, he said something that just a dagger right in my heart. You know what he said? He said, in America, when someone has a need, we say, I'll pray for you. And what we really mean is, I hope the government's able to bail you out. He said, over in Southeast Asia, if someone tells you they have a need, and you tell them that you're going to pray for them, and you don't step up and do something about it, that person's going to starve to death and die. Because the government doesn't bail them out. He said it takes actions behind those prayers. We don't pray that somehow it mysteriously gets handled. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not here tonight to preach against our government, per se, but I think it's important to make this point. Ronald Reagan said that welfare should be a safety net, not a hammock. And welfare is turned into a hammock where a whole bunch of lazy people lay and just take from the government. And uh, that's part of what's going to end up toppling this country, unfortunately, because we're taking from the rich and we're giving to the poor. That's called socialism, and that leads to communism and ultimately to Marxism, and that's of the devil. That's of the devil. That government system has never worked anywhere in the world, and it won't work here. And communism and Marxism ends up to the shuttering of church doors and the shutting down of religious liberty in a country. That's where we're heading. That's where we're heading. You say, well, isn't socialism found in Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 34 through 37? No. Because socialism is when you make the government God and you force everyone to participate. Here, the government is not taking care of people. The church is taking care of people. What is the system that God had intended to take care of the poor when he established the church? It was that people would give to a benevolence fund in the church and that the pastor and church leaders would take in the needs of those that had and the money that was given by those of great wealth would turn and give to those who had great want. Unfortunately, many of you here are taxed so heavy, you can't give to a benevolence fund like you wish you could because the government has tried to take that away from the church. And I would say the government has, in many cases, stripped that away from the church. Can I encourage you that on top of your tax dollars, 
that you give to the benevolence fund of this church. We have people here that are in great need. I'll add this to it as well. Uh, When the government mails out a welfare check, they're not really checking to see if that person is fixing the bad habits that possibly put them there. You know what happens when someone comes to Pastor Lejeune and says, I'm having some financial troubles, can you help me? Uh, after a time or two, you know what I do? I look them in the eye and say, I sure can if you'll sit down with one of our staff folks and open up your finances and let us see how we can help you get things back on track. We're not here to give away fish. We're here to teach people how to fish. That's what God intended with the church. You see, when the church becomes the center of the hub to help people who are in great need, then people flock to the church. They hear the gospel preached. They're helped. They're saved. They're renewed. They're taught if a man does not work, neither should he eat. They're taught to take care of their own. They're taught that if if someone doesn't take care of their own, they're worse than an infidel or a pagan. They're taught uh, biblical values and morals. They're taught how to live responsible lives. But in order for this system to work, people of wealth must give. I'll just say this, and we're almost some of the message, but I'll just say this here. Unfortunately, people don't look at their own money the way the folks in the book of Acts did. People look at their own money and they have one word they attach to that money. Mine. How many ladies work the nursery in here? Or work with children? You ever see one kid that has a uh, toy and another kid wants that toy? Mine! It's mine! You know the toddler's creed? If it was, if it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours and I want it, it's mine. If I, if, if I had it five minutes ago and you now have it and I want it back, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And man, I'll tell you, many Christians, they white-knuckle that money. They hold on to it so tight. You know, here in Acts chapter 4, these folks, the Bible says... They didn't see the money as theirs. They saw it as God's. God had put it in their bank account. Are there any Barnabases in the room tonight? Is there anyone who would go as far as to sell a piece of property and say, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to entrust it to the Benevolence Fund to help take care of the needs of the poor? That's pretty extreme. Barnabas did it, and then a culture developed around that where others began to do it. And the Bible says here that no one had need of anything. Now, they weren't equally rich, right? There wasn't a a pulling down of the rich and a lifting up of the poor where everyone was in the middle. Those who were wealthy stayed wealthy, and those who were poor probably stayed poor, but they had enough to pay their bills and get by. I would hate to see that anyone in our church who loves God is um, not able to pay a bill and is struggling. I brought up a need a few weeks ago to our church family of someone who has a medical need that they're not able to pay. And um, the amount was quite high, and I asked the church to dig deep and give. And about two-thirds of that money has come in, praise God. I really do believe this, though, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just trying to be honest with this tonight. I believe that if more of God's people would have an Acts 4 mentality, we would have had double or triple come in what we needed to pay that bill. But we don't. We don't. Lastly, God has called Christians to live simple lives. Simple lives. Ladies, you don't have to carry around a $600 purse. Now, if you have one tonight, I'm not picking on you. I don't know what's what, okay? You could have a bag that's worth 50 bucks and 600 bucks and put them side by side, and I'm clueless. I don't know. I'm not picking on anybody tonight. Men, we don't have to wear $800 suits. We don't have to drive luxury cars live in homes with a three-car garage. If God's blessed you with wealth and you're you're benevolent and you're giving and and you can afford that as well, hey, amen, God bless you. Nothing sinful about having money. Nothing sinful about it. 
But what is sinful is saying it's mine and I won't give even when God leads. I believe that if Christians would live simple lives and give to God's work, more and more and more folks would be saved. I have a friend of mine in another part of the country who is a single man well into his 70s, or rather in his early 70s. He's a man of great wealth. He's given a whole lot to his church and his church ministry. I asked him, I said, um, when you one day pass, do you have any family that you'll leave your wealth to? And I have a very good relationship with him, and so he knew I wasn't, you know, asking him to write me into his will. That was not at all the intent. And he understood that. And he said, no, when I die, my money's going to be divided up between the church I attend and a children's hospital to help children who are struggling with sicknesses. Hey, and I praise God for that. Millions of dollars will go to those two places. What's more important? Children who are starving? Children who are dying of cancer? Or children, or rather, people who are dying and going to hell? Boy, I sure would like to see some people dig deep and give to see world missions here prosper. To see the needs of those here saved, uh, rather met, and the lost saved. I believe that everything financially we need to see the gospel work accomplished at White Oak Baptist Church, it's here at White Oak Baptist Church. It's just in your bank accounts and not in the offering plate. If you're here tonight and you give and you give generously to our church, I'm not here to pressure you into giving more. I thank you for what you give. You give generously and I praise you for that. And you all know I don't know who does the giving around here. But if you're here tonight and you don't give much, can I just tell you why I believe that is? You've not experienced God's power and God's grace. If you would, you'd give. Great power, great grace. Little power, little grace. This church would accomplish some amazing things. In fact, we're here tonight in large part because of the church of Jerusalem. And the start they had. God's grace becomes our defense against our foes. It defines our prayer when we worship our Creator. It dictates our giving when we see the needs of other believers. If your giving is limited, then God's grace is limited in your life. How about it tonight, Christian? Will you surrender your heart and ask God to fill you with that power and that grace? Let's have our heads bowed nice closed. Several heads about nice close at this time. How many of you here would say, Pastor Lejeune, some aspect of the message tonight, God has spoken to me. Pastor, pray for me that God will help me to yield and submit to his plan and that I would follow through on the decision he's pressing me to make tonight. If that's you, would you just hold up your hand? God's working on my heart. There's some decision I need to make. Pastor, pray for me that I'll make it and stick to it. Lord, help us tonight. Help us tonight to be prepared as we partake of the Lord's Supper elements. And Lord, help us tonight to be people who follow the model here found in Acts chapter 4. May we give and may we give generously. Lord, you meet the needs of your people through each and every one of us. And Lord, may this church be, be, be known as a church where your power and boldness is strong and your grace runs rich. In Jesus' name.